Uh, if you are here for the first time um, or joining us, um, we're, we're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapters 5 to 7. Uh, I was away at a conference last weekend, uh, but I heard that you had two messages on Matthew 5, 13 to 16, uh, salt and light. Um, well, tonight, uh, I thought it'd be a good idea to do a third message on this passage. I'm just kidding. Uh, we're moving on. We're moving on to the next section. Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. And I will read it for us. Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, God, we ask that uh, you would illumine our minds uh, through your word and by the spirit and help us to understand and not only to understand, uh, but be changed, be transformed uh, by your word. Uh, we ask that you would do this in your son's name. Amen. Imagine with me uh, that you are among the crowds listening to Jesus as he preaches this sermon. You're a first century Jew. You observe the Sabbath every week. Uh, you don't have the Bible uh, at home, which is the Old Testament at the time. But you do go to the synagogue weekly uh, for corporate worship. You listen to the Torah which is the first five books of the Old Testament. You listen to the prophets and the rest of the Old Testament being read. And when you're out in public, uh, you sometimes see the scribes. And you see the Pharisees walking around. Uh, these people are very knowledgeable of Scripture. And they know and, and read a lot of the books and scrolls and writings of their Jewish ancestors. Uh, along with your peers, you, you look up to them. You regard them highly. You call them rabbi, teachers. Uh, in their dress, attire, they look spiritual, austere, with their robes and uh, what are called phylacteries. They're, they're boxes that you wear on yourself that contain words of scripture. Uh, you see them even giving money to the poor. Uh, you hear them praying, very religious language, elegant, whether in the synagogue or outside, even on the street. Uh, you can also tell they're fasting uh, just because of the way they look. And surely they're a model of good works, examples of righteous living. Now all of a sudden, uh, this person named Jesus appears on the scene. Uh, and you note that this Jesus is very different from the religious leaders. And not just different, they're even butting heads. As an example, uh, you see that Jesus speaks with women. He teaches women. He, women follow him as his disciples. And the Jewish leaders look down on this because in the Mishnah, uh, which is the oral tradition of Jewish law, that's something added to scripture. The Mishnah says this, He that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law. And here is this religious teacher, Jesus, speaking with women. Another example is that you hear him 
uh, that, that he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And again, this is looked down on by the Jewish leaders because the Mishnah says, keep far from an evil neighbor and consort not with the wicked. Okay, so Jesus' social interactions are different uh, than how the religious leaders socialize. Uh, but what about something in the Old Testament, a big one, the Sabbath? Word has spread that one time on a Sabbath day, this Jesus passed through grain fields and his disciples picked the heads of grain and ate them. And the Pharisees looked at this and accused Jesus, you are breaking the Sabbath. But Jesus replied, haven't you read, haven't you read what David and those who were with him did when he was hungry and entered the house of God and ate bread that are for the priests to eat? And then Jesus says, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, as a first century Jew, you're, you're wondering, uh, what is Jesus doing with sacred scripture? What is he doing with the Old Testament? Because on the one hand, he's affirming it. He's quoting it. He's saying, haven't you read the Old Testament? I mean, he's appealing to the authority of the Old Testament. But on the other hand, it seems like he's teaching something different, at least different from what the scribes and Pharisees are teaching, different from how they're handling Scripture. But not only Jesus is teaching, his conduct is so different from the conduct of, of the Jewish leaders. If he's telling us, as, he, as he's doing in this sermon, to let our light shine before others, if he's telling us that our, our light is made visible through our conduct, through our good works, then what are those good works? How does Jesus define good works? Because to, to me, to you, to us, it very much looks like what the scribes and Pharisees are doing. So here's what Jesus is doing in our passage. Two things. One, Jesus very clearly upholds the Old Testament. He's declaring the enduring authority of the Old Testament. He has a high view of the Old Testament. Secondly, he tells us that the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees falls short. It falls short. Now, two reasons why this is important for us. First, if, if we don't have the view of the Old Testament that Jesus has, uh, which is a high view of the Old Testament, uh, we might as well just have the New Testament for our Bibles. I mean, uh, we're just following the teachings of Jesus, right? And of his apostles. So we wouldn't need our Old Testament. Well, Jesus has a very different view of the Old Testament. And secondly, this is important for us because we might think righteousness um, just like the way the scribes and Pharisees lived their lives, we might think that righteousness is just doing a lot of spiritual things. Praying, fasting, tithing, studying scripture. Uh, but God demands a righteousness that is far more than what can be seen on the surface. And so I'm going to spend more time on the second point of righteousness. Uh, but we're going to look first at uh, how Jesus views the Old Testament. Um, so the first section. The Old Testament leads us to worship Christ. Verses 17 to 18. 
He says this, verse 17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now that phrase, the law or the prophets, uh, it designates the whole Old Testament. As sometimes, for example, in Luke 24, when Jesus is speaking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, three parts of the Old Testament are mentioned, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Sometimes it's just a single referent, the law, uh, to refer to the whole Old Testament. Uh, Jesus' main point is, is this, in, in this verse, that I, I'm not against the Old Testament, is what Jesus is saying. I haven't come to do away with the Old Testament. My teaching is not contrary to it. Instead, uh, I'm upholding it. In fact, he says, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, what does it mean to fulfill uh, the Old Testament? Does it mean that Jesus came to perfectly obey God's law on our behalf because we failed to do so? Perfect obedience to God's law. I think that's a part of it. Uh, But I think he's speaking of something more. And I think the key is at the end of verse 18. He says that nothing in the Old Testament will pass away until all is accomplished. Accomplished. So to fulfill the Old Testament is to accomplish all that God promises in the Old Testament. Now, this includes prophecy. So it's not just perfect obedience to the law. And so far from saying, forget the Old Testament, you know, I've come to replace the Old Testament with something better. Jesus is declaring the enduring authority of the Old Testament until heaven and earth pass away. I'm going to bring everything written in the Old Testament to pass. In fact, he says, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. And and those are references to the smallest strokes in Hebrew writing. One is the size of a comma. The other is the difference between, uh, in English, it would be, for example, between between C and E. So the little line in the middle. So even to the the littlest stroke, Jesus is going to bring everything to pass. Absolutely high regard for the Old Testament. Now here's one implication that I would like to draw from this for you guys. What is your approach to the Old Testament? How do you treat the Old Testament? Augustine famously said, uh, as you can see in your notes there, I uh, quoted him, the new is in the old concealed, uh, the old is in the new revealed. He's saying that when we read the Old Testament, we see the truths of the New Testament are actually there all along in the Old Testament. It's in a concealed, uh, preparatory way. And when we read the New Testament, we see the truths of the Old Testament more clearly and gloriously revealed in the New. So what would happen if, as Christians, we just stick to the New Testament? Because we live in the New Covenant age, right? Or the New Testament is just easier to understand. Or it's just more directly applicable. What if we just stuck to the New Testament? Well, if I can use a car illustration, uh, it's like driving on a cold, frosty morning and your windshield is not as clear as it could be. You'll likely get from point A to point B, uh, but it may be more dangerous. uh, You'll be more fearful. 
Uh, and it won't be as pleasant because you won't as easily see what's in front of you and even enjoy the scenery in front of you. Now, if we have a hazy or limited view of Christ, not as rich, deep, expansive, well, our life is going to reflect that. And only by the grace of God, we will get to point B, which is heaven and eternity. But the clear view we have right now of Christ and of his glory as revealed in all of Scripture, the clearer view we have, the more our lives will reflect that. We'll reflect a life of faith when it gets hard. Our life will be a life of joy in the face of sorrow, a life of hope when it feels hopeless, hopeless to defeat sin, hopeless to endure great suffering. This is what makes the difference. This is what happens when we have an abiding, a growing and expanding view of God as he reveals himself in scripture. So we need the whole Bible. Otherwise, our worship of him will be truncated. And let me go at it by using another analogy um, from my life. So this past Tuesday, Ruth Ann and I celebrated our third anniversary. Um, my wife, she enjoys cool jazz. Uh, and so we found a jazz bar close to LAX. A Yelp review called it a hidden gem, one of LA's best kept secrets. Um, and it's called Sam First, if you're curious. But I, it says that uh, you have to be 21, so sorry. Um, unless you're 21. Uh, and so, yeah, it wasn't cool jazz that was being performed, but it was jazz and it was amazing. Uh, there's a pianist um, and upright bass drums uh, for two songs. There was um, an alto sax player for one song. There was a, a tenor sax player. And um, I loved hearing um, all of it, right? And, but, but particularly, I loved the, the bass, the upright bass and the plucking. Um, I loved when one of them, one of the musicians will be playing a solo, uh, and then you signal to the others and everyone just joins in. It's like uh, very seamless. It's, it's, it, was, it was fun. Uh, but for someone like me, uh, who knows nothing, who's no, nothing about jazz, uh, and whose guitar skill level is playing chords and a little bit of finger picking, um, I, I clearly, obviously, don't know all the skill involved, all the complexity and, and the tone of the music and the creativity of, what, of, what's, being, of what's happening. And I'm still wowed by the performance. I could tell it's great. I, I enjoy it. Uh, but my experience of jazz is different. And I'll say it's, it's not as rich, not as impactful than someone who loves jazz, than someone whose life is all about jazz, who's listened to jazz over decades, knows all the composers, all the different songs, knows by experience how difficult it can be to move your fingers that fast and to play so seamlessly and in unison with other musicians. Now, for me, the, the awesomeness of jazz, or the glory of jazz, if I can put it that way, it doesn't really change my life, right? Well, when we are content with our current knowledge of God, uh, satisfied with what we already know about the Old Testament, about Scripture as a whole, uh, it's going to be like my experience of jazz. Like, you're, you're still going to be wowed by God, but the glory of God won't be making as deep of an impact on your life, not as transformative of a change in your life as the glory of God should. So we want to constantly be growing 
in our knowledge of God through Scripture. Uh, in your notes there, um, there are several resources. Um, just to, to be a little bit more practical, um, if you need a place to start to know better the Old Testament and how it connects to the New Testament, uh, those are some recommended resources for you. And the goal is, to, to be clear, in, in growing our knowledge of Scripture, it's more than just an experience of worship, right? More than just an experience of worship. Knowing God more deeply leads to a changed life, a life of righteousness. All right, so that's what we're going to consider the second half of our passage. Christ leads us to a life of righteousness. Uh, I'll read again verse 19 here. Uh, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same uh, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So here, Jesus makes it very clear in verse 19. A a true disciple uh, is fiercely committed to doing what God commands. And not just for us to follow, but to teach others to do the same, just as we heard from Alessandro, right? The Great Commission, making disciples of Christ, which includes teaching others to do all that Christ commands. In fact, Jesus says in verse 20 that our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Otherwise, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We won't enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what's at stake here. Have you ever thought uh, being a Christian is so hard? It almost seems impossible. How can anyone live obeying God all the time? One author puts it this way. He's looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Who among us never worries, uh, never lusts, never gets angry, never lies, is never a hypocrite, and always loves his enemies, always follows the golden rule, and always serves God alone? No one does. No one does. Right? And we know that. We know that the Christian life is not about sinless obedience. When Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, he says, forgive us our debts. Uh, The expectation is that we will sin. But the Christian life is a life fueled by saving grace that bears fruit in true obedience. Not a sinless obedience, but true obedience. And so Jesus um, isn't talking about perfect, sinless obedience, well, what does he mean when he says our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? Because that still sounds almost impossible. I mean, how can you be holier than the most religious people? How can you do more good works than they do? Well, what Jesus is getting at has been described one way as the difference between quantity and quality. So the scribes and Pharisees may have done a lot of good works, but theirs was a dead, superficial righteousness. The quality that Christ seeks 
is of a wholehearted righteousness. It's the difference between a dead, superficial righteousness and a wholehearted righteousness. We can be more specific than that. How does the righteousness that God produces in us by his grace exceed that of the Jewish leaders? How is it different? Well, I want to point out four characteristic traits of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Self-righteousness. And and by saying that these are traits of the righteousness of the Jewish leaders, we we, we admit um, these are ways in which we as believers may tend toward this kind of self-righteousness. And so let's dig deeper into this. And and to introduce this, uh, these four traits I listed are not comprehensive. um, And and they're not separate from one another. They overlap. You can see one in another. Okay, so let's look at the first one. Um, The first one is, it has a wrong focus. Wrong focus. Focusing on the external more than the heart. The focus is on what is outward, uh, rituals, it's religious observances, more than the heart. In Matthew 23, Jesus indicts the Jewish leaders. He says in verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. He says, Very similarly, verse 28, So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now to be clear, this is not to say that the outside doesn't matter at all. Uh, What you do on the outside, your practices, external forms of worship, they, they do matter. But not to the neglect of the heart. 2 Timothy 3, 5, Paul puts it this way, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. The appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Now there's a big difference between someone who is characteristically hypocritical uh, and someone who truly loves Christ, but can fall prey to this. Um, And and what are some ways uh, this could happen to us? It happens, for example, when it becomes enough for us if we just go to church, if we just go to Beacon, and and we're not more concerned about why we're here, to worship God, to learn His Word. We gather more than just to see our friends at the end of a long week, uh, or to just hang out with other Christians. We're here to encourage one another's faith. We're here to grow in love for one another, to ask how we're doing, to follow up on something we've shared, to share ourselves how we're really doing, becoming better at listening and entering in, to be on the lookout for how we can serve, not waiting for people to come to us, but making an effort to get to know one another and build unity as the family of God. And that's what we're after. Now, how else can we focus more on the external than on the heart? Let's take uh, the example of quiet times. This happens when we're more concerned about having done a quiet time 
than about earnestly going to God throughout the day, appraising Him by identifying His grace in your life, asking for His wisdom as you think about how to love someone, as you meditate on, on a truth and how it connects to your life. I'm going to dig a little deeper by way of a question. Do we appear to others, even to those close to us, like we have it all together? That we don't struggle with anything? I've recently been convicted of this. If I'm really aware of my indwelling sin and my need for God, my need for help, do I ask others to pray for me? Or am I more concerned about not exposing my weakness? More concerned about, I don't want to be a burden on someone else. I consider this quote I recently heard on the grace of confessing sin to others. If you want to stay stuck in your sin, confess it only to God. If you want to stay stuck in your sin, confess it only to God. If you want to stay stuck in your impatience and anger towards someone, or your anxiety over your grades, or your apathy to the things of God, or your love of pleasure, lack of discipline, your lust for sexual sin, go ahead and just confess it only to God, but keep it hidden from everyone else. If I'm convicted of sin, how readily do I confess my sin to my wife, to others? Now, how about you? How about you? Do those who walk with you closely know how they can pray for you? Confessing sin to others, asking others to pray for us, sharing our struggles, inviting others to walk with us, these are some of the ways we experience the power of God to truly change our hearts. But maybe we struggle to do this because we're more concerned about appearing godly than being godly. And we move on to a second way we might fuel self-righteousness. It's to have the wrong standard, the wrong standard. A focus, or the standard is man-made rules instead of God's righteousness. Uh, We see an example of this in Matthew 15, when the Jewish leaders question Jesus on why his disciples eat with unwashed hands. So these Jewish leaders say to Jesus, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? And to this, Jesus replies, well, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And what was happening was that God commands, honor your father and your mother. But the Jewish leaders taught, uh, no, you don't need to do that. You can tell your parents what I'm, or I'm giving to God, uh, what you would have gotten from me. <clears throat> and I think we can quite easily fall into this, even unintentionally. And so I'll share an example from my own life, uh, which I actually shared before in Beacon. Um, As a single person before getting married, um, I usually um, would try to, yeah, spend my quiet time in the morning, uh, which is when I feel most productive, um, going through a Bible reading plan, prayer. When I got married, this would continue. um, But the way I went about this actually was unloving to Ruthann. And so I would go straight to my morning, or I would try to go straight to my morning habit of scripture and prayer uh, without really talking to my wife, 
super thin, without connecting with her. And then I would end up not having had a conversation with her till way later in the day, and maybe well into the evening after work. And because of this habit, um, even if she did move toward me in the morning, I might give brief, curt answers, you know, because I'm in the word. Um, <clears throat> in my case, the wrong standard was one of the first things I do when I wake up in the morning is to have an extended time in the word and prayer before I get to anything else. But this standard actually became a way to dishonor my wife. So what about for you? Uh, what can this look like for you uh, that you hold on to? It has to look this way. Standards that you impose on others or on yourself. The expectations that you have that actually hinder love. Expectations of this is how a friendship. This is what a friendship must look like. This is my expectation of grades. Uh, this, these are my study habits. This is what it has to look like. I have expectations of spiritual growth. It has to look like this. Or expectations of fellowship. Uh, maybe one area to consider is your devotions. Your devotions. Do you measure how good or bad your week was based on how many quiet times you had that week? Now, to clarify, I'm not saying we shouldn't reflect on how much we fueled our minds with God's word versus the things of earth. Quiet times is one way to assess that. What I'm getting at is, is how rigid our, uh, is our standard, is our version of a quiet time. And, and it's okay. It's okay if it doesn't always look the same every day. The more important question is, when we don't get to do a quiet time in the way we want to, are we loving and honoring those around us? Are we still seeking him the rest of the day in ways that don't always look like an open Bible in a journal in front of you? Are you taking into account those times you're looking at God's word with others, like right, what we're doing right now? When you're listening to a good Christian podcast, singing songs of worship, reading a good Christian book, enjoying his good creation to his glory, are you taking moments, even extended times, outside of your usual quiet time to call to mind his word, Meditate on what he's doing in your life. Meditating on how he is loving you right now. Meditating on how you can love someone else. Praying to give thanks, confess sin, ask for help. These are the more important questions than did I do my quiet times this week in the exact way that I wanted. Now let's move on to a third way we can exhibit self-righteousness. It's to have the wrong attitude. It's the, I'm better than you. I'm better than them. I'm better than so-and-so. Instead of, how do I love? How do I love? In Luke 18, Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, we see all the elements of self-righteousness that we've discussed. The Pharisee says in this prayer, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The focus is on what he's doing externally to the neglect of the heart. He's not humble. He doesn't love others, including the tax collector. Well, he has also the wrong standard. He, he trusts in himself that by doing these religious things and not being an extortioner, he's, he thinks he's not being unjust or an adulterer, and all by his definition of these things, right? He thinks that he's being righteous. 
It's the wrong standard. Finally, he has the wrong attitude toward others. He looks down on others. He treats the tax collector with contempt. He prays, God, thank you. Thank you that I'm not like these other men, like this tax collector. Now, how easily can we latch on to some good thing that we're doing and think that we're better than others? And what are some ways we can do this? We can think, I'm committed to Lighthouse. But you, you're more committed to AACF than you are to the church. I'm a Calvinist. Praise God, I know my doctrines of grace. You don't know your Bible. Or you don't know your Bible that well. I'm really trying to love my non-Christian friends well. But you're in a Christian bubble. You're always just hanging out with Christians. I'm trying to reach out to brothers and sisters. I'm trying to deepen community. Man, you're always just studying. Or you're always just by yourself. We're trying to live out our faith on campus. You're just sticking to your local church. You don't really want to be involved with us. What would it sound like if we remembered that each of us, we are so in need of God's mercy, and so are they? What would it sound like if we remembered that it's only by God's grace that there's any good in me? We would want to move toward Help me to understand what's going, on, what's going on. Help me to understand you. Can we talk about this together? How can I come alongside and help if it's appropriate? My desire to love should affect my tone, my view of them, my approach, if it calls for it, my prayers for them. Let's move on to the fourth and final way we can show self-righteousness. It's to have the wrong motivation. Self-justification instead of grace. In Luke 16, 15, Jesus says to the Pharisees, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Justify yourselves before men. Now, do you remember... Uh, when a lawyer um, puts Jesus to the test, this is in Luke 10, this lawyer asks Jesus, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And the lawyer himself knows the answer. Knows, uh, he says this, he says the first and second greatest commandment. And Jesus affirms this answer as correct and tells him, do this. Do this and you will live. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, right? And love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you will live. What was the lawyer's response to this? Luke 10, 29 says that the lawyer desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This lawyer wanted to put limits on God's commands, to bend it so that he can say, I'm, I'm okay. I don't need to change. I'm, I'm not in the wrong. I'm righteous. And then Jesus replies with the parable of the good Samaritan. And we are so prone to justify ourselves in the sight of others when we are actually guilty before God by his standard. Let's apply this to fellowship among believers. Are we the kind of people who say, 
I, I know that this is clearly the most loving thing to do, but I'm not going to do it because I, I just don't have to, or because it's, that's just not me. For example, are we the kind of people who say, I don't need to go and meet new people because I'm just not good at doing that. It's not my gift. Are we the kind of people who say, I, I'm, I'm going to stick to people I'm comfortable with because it's just easier. Well, what's wrong with that? I can space out in this conversation, in this discussion, because it's not interesting to me. You know, I should, I should say something here. I should say something in this discussion, but, but I'm, I'm not because, yeah, I'm going to sound too spiritual. I'm going to sound too weird. I might even sound stupid. I'm just going to keep to myself because it takes too much work to talk to people. Are we justifying our lack of love? Now, what then would it mean to be motivated by grace, by grace, by God's grace? It might sound like this. I'm going to reach out to others even though it's uncomfortable, because God pursued me when I, when I had no interest in him. Even worse, when I was his enemy. I'm going to love this person who is difficult to love because God is patient with me in my sin and unloveliness. I'm going to risk sounding foolish uh, because Christ made himself low and was ridiculed, even misunderstood. For our sake, I'm going to try and, and get deeper in this conversation because God has drawn my heart out and given me the joy of deeper communion with him and his people. Now I'm going to stay engaged in this conversation and learn to take interest in them in whatever they share because Christ takes interest in me because God cares about the things I care about. And these are just some examples of how we can be motivated by grace instead of justifying ourselves. Now I'm going to conclude um, by answering this question. Uh, what happens when I fail to live up to this surpassing righteousness? Because fail we will, right? And how do I think about this as a Christian in light of the gospel, about this surpassing righteousness? The hope of the gospel uh, is that it's not up to your works. It's not up to your obedience, right? It was never about your perfect righteousness. From the start of your salvation to the end of your sanctification, it has always been about Christ and his perfect obedience for us. And so if you are a Christian and you fail to live up to this surpassing righteousness, come again. To the mercies of God. Taste afresh the forgiveness of Christ. Let his kindness draw us to true repentance. Let his promises give us hope. Come again to the light where the people of God are, where we do not walk alone, where we grow in being honest with each other, constructive of one another, purposeful together. Come again to the gospel to this reality, that Christ died, that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him, to the reality 
and the promise that Christ is, he is making you and I to be less and less about me and more and more like him. And that is the great hope that we have in the gospel. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you, Lord, that uh, Jesus said it is finished. And God, that it's not up to us. It's not up to to us to um, be right before you, God. But because Christ um, has and is right for us perfectly, God, that we can live out this reality. We are blood-bought people. God, we God want to live a, a life of true righteousness. God, proclaiming uh, that it is all of grace, it is because of Christ, and that we can do so. So I pray, Father, that you would uh, unpack this further uh, in, in our daily lives, in our week. What, what, is, what does this mean? What does this look like? Uh, where ought I to repent? And how can I know more of his grace and kindness to me, Lord? So I pray, Father, that you would do this um, even through our small group and ongoing meditation and reflection. Um, it is in your son's name we pray. Amen.